everybody and welcome back to we bought a mic for yet another one more tribeca interview special bonus episode i am Ernest, and i'm drew and there's no fucking hunter that's right folks uh so you don't have to skip this one People might be thinking, where the hell is the F9 podcast? This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't fast and furious. What is this? More Tribeca? You know, the answer is technically no, because this movie didn't uh, premiere at Tribeca. Uh, but also, you're right that it isn't Fast 9. It's something a little more emotionally uh, intelligent than that. It is about family, though, from from what I know. <laughs> they did steal that from F9. Yeah. In this movie. <laughs> any any movie that is about family has to, like, cut a check to uh, Vin Diesel. Yeah. Anytime there's like a dad or like a mom, even though there are none of those in the fast movies. Right. Well, hey, there's two more. So <sighs> never know. You never know what they got up their sleeve. But greatness takes time sometimes, folks, and we'll have that episode for you shortly. We we just needed a break. You know, the 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 coalescing of the Nick Cage series with all these Tribeca interviews. It was it was a lot for the pod boys. And we we never miss a week. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know what? Let's uh, you know what? Fuck them. Let's let's take some time. Let's let's get some petties and manies. Let's go podcasting, to the spa. Podcasting is the most strenuous thing you can do to your body. <laughs> and I'm I'm I was just about on the edge of uh, losing it, losing my body. They yeah. almost had to cut it off. Um, and now I, I'm feeling a little bit spry. I'm sick. Literally, I am ill. I'm at home. Uh, couldn't be there in person. Can't don't want to go to the theater while sick. You just don't want to do it. Even if it's not COVID, like if I cough, bro, you know, <laughs> everybody's going to be staring at you like this motherfucker. Yeah. I don't want to Yeah, this on. guy, this guy, but I'll um, do it. But yeah, we have this, this, uh, this special bonus interview. One more for y'all to, to hold you over for the big F nine pod. We didn't want to keep the, the feed uh, collecting too many cobwebs. So we figured let's, uh, let's, let's give the listeners another little special talk. And, and you had the chance to speak with the writer and director of Lorelei, um, which we had the honor and the pleasure of talking to the star of this movie, uh, Jenna Malone. Um, so now you got a chance to speak to Sabrina Doyle. Tell us about it. Yeah. Um, we were unabashedly pretty big fans of Lorelai, me and Hunter. Um, and it was cool talking to Jenna. And I found myself after that interview having more questions. Because uh, part of, like, I almost, I thought that Sabrina would be a part of the initial interview. So some of mine were geared more towards the, like the directorial side of things. Um, but also I'm really fascinated by Sabrina Doyle. Uh, I found out like during the interview that she is British well, not, she didn't have to tell me I'm not that stupid, but I heard, I heard her voice and I was like, what in the fuck? Because, uh, this movie tackles American poverty in like a very, very authentic way. Um, Sabrina herself uh, has experienced, uh, living in poverty, which makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, but I, I'm really interested in her 
future like as a director and writer because this is her first feature she's written and directed most of the short films that she's uh made and she wrote and directed this and this film has like there there's not a weakness on either side of things like it's very well directed and it's very well written so uh sky's the limit for sabrina like you know you'll hear in the interview i think she has like the sort of head on her shoulders that like someone who is just destined for like mega success would have like she just seems like she's ready to go um so yeah it was really it was exciting to get her perspective on the movie um even you know i a lot of similar questions came up uh that that we talked about with jenna but you know you get entirely different answers going through a different role in the production process uh so it was it was very neat all right well without further ado let's go to that interview right now with sabrina doyle the writer director of lorelei Welcome back to We Bottom Mike, uh, part of our Tribeca Film Press series. Uh, and we're here with Sabrina Doyle, who directed the film Lorelei, who we previously had uh, Je- actress Jenna Malone on for. Uh, really excited to have you on, though, Sabrina. I was just telling you. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. It's nice, nice to be here. Yeah. Um, we, we were all massive fans of the movie. It, it has a, like a real emotional impact. Uh, but I wanted I wanted to like go back to like sort of the inception of the project because uh, it's always interesting. Like, what was the the original idea you had as the writer and director of this that ended up turning into the final product? Yeah, so um, I start. So I knew I wanted to make a film about a blue collar family. That was really important to me because that's the um, that's the family that I grew up in. It's the family background I know. Those are the sort of family da- dynamics. I I had growing up and I knew what it was like. I knew the stresses that like having not having money as a family put you under as a family. So and what that does to the sort of to the relationships between family members. And um, but also it was really important for me. I feel I, I felt very strongly watching this kind of subgenre of film set in kind of working class blue collar communities. I felt that that I I could bring something new to the table, which was my sort of perspective coming from that background. I feel that some of those, some of the, some of the time those films are made by people who maybe don't come from that background and think they have to have something to say about that background. So often, you know, the films can, can be slightly sadistic towards their characters, you know, like really put them through a lot of misery and kind of in the name of kind of revealing hardship, which is, you know, I mean, obviously important to kind of um, shine a light on, on those things, but also I think sometimes they do it at the expense of richness of character and richness of imagination oh yeah I feel like the characters in these types of films don't have any imaginations and the films themselves are shot like documentaries um you know because that makes them authentic or something I mean even though they're actually fictional films yeah there's, yeah, there's, there's less room for like what you include which is a lot of sort of metaphorical imagery right yeah and I just I wanted to show the dream life of the characters and the interior life of the characters and the creativity and resilience of the characters and getting through their sort of getting through the day, dreaming of a better tomorrow, sort of dreaming big when sort of life and economic circumstances sort of conspire to keep you small. So, so that was a kind of, um, that was a kind of feeling I had um, about something I wanted to address that sort of was the genesis of the movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you, you know, someone qualified like you was able to take on the project then because uh, yeah, I, I brought it up with Jenna, the, <laughs> 
it, these projects either have a tendency, like you said, to just be sort of hollow and like torturous to their characters or just condescending. You know, it, it just it feels you're feeling that someone is like looking at these people with just pity, you know? Yeah. And and yeah. This, this avoids that on both fronts because there's so much empathy for every character in this, even when they're making like poor choices, even when you're disagreeing with them. Yeah, there's empathy. And I think what Jenna does so beautifully um, in the film is say, you know what, Dolores does not always make good choices. And um, and and we talked about that before the film and she really she really wanted to embrace that and lean into that. Like, obviously, as an actor, that's scary, right? Like conveying a character that kind of that does make bad choices that might be unlikable in moments. And yeah. And also and the audience really, still needs to, you know, somewhat be on board with her throughout. Yeah. And I mean, and Jenna just went for that sort of wholeheartedly. And I think that 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 that's how you escape the condescension and the pity. Right. It's like. This is a real per- this is a real flesh and blood human being just like you. They do good stuff, they do bad stuff, they have dreams, they you know, they succeed, they fail, you know, and I think that that kind of roundedness um is part of um part of it. And I you know, I mean I remember I sort of was when as I was writing the script, I was thinking of kind of I you know, I I I I like to sort of think of literary references when I'm writing poems. There was a poem that was a bit, a bit of Shakespeare that was really important to me as I was writing, but I was thinking of Schopenhauer as well and how he said that compassion is the basis of all morality. And that kind of, that was on my mind as well. That's really interesting. I wish I was more well-read. So instead <laughs> of following up, I will have to pivot. Skipping, skipping along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, I mean, speaking toward the fact that like this is the type of project and portrayal of like poverty you wanted to have, uh, Sean Baker became involved with this project and he obviously has the exact same interest. Um, so um, how did that? Sean, Sean, Sean did not, but Sean's producers did. So produ- yeah. Okay. So producers. that's what it was. It was the yeah. production team. Um, so how so did it- that happen? Yeah, so our producers were um, uh, Kevin Chinoy and Francesca Silvestri, who produced the Florida Project and have also been in the industry a long time and are sort of industry veterans. And I think, you know, I always say that we had, you know, it's tough making an indie, but we also got really lucky in some respects. And we got really lucky the first time, we got really lucky because we secured um, the financing for the film from an equity investor who had been a stepfather in his life and had said it was the most rewarding thing he'd ever done, but also the most difficult thing he'd ever done. And basically put up most of the financing for the film because this film was about a stepfather. Um, in some Wayland eventually come, becomes a father figure to the children. And mm-hmm. that, and so he sort of, that really resonated with him. So he put up the fight. So we, we had the money, which I think is always the first hurdle. And then we got, we got Kevin and Francesca involved and, and that was in, just incredible because they, you know, they allowed us to kind of get taken seriously by the agents and managers. I'm sure a big part of the reason we got Pablo and Jenna, I mean, they obviously really responded to the screenplay, but I think just knowing that they were in safe hands with, with Kevin and Francesca really helped the agents and managers take us seriously because they had those relationships. Um, and the, the way they got involved was they read the screenplay. It, start, it all starts with the screenplay, right? And so you know, I had done several drafts of the screenplay at this point and it was, you know, it was pretty in a pretty advanced state. I didn't bring it to them early, early. Um, um, so the screenplay was pretty close to what we ended up shooting. And um, and then I think they really responded, something I did, which sort of, um, you know, I think all filmmakers should do, especially sort of 
you know, especially before you have a body of work that people can kind of look at is I did a very, I did a really, I spent a lot of time making a lookbook. So I had a sort of 20 page, um, eventually my lookbook for my cast and crew was much, was even a bit, an even bigger sort of tome. It was like 80 pages or something, but my lookbook that I just sent out to people to get them interested in the project was about 20 pages long. And it was 20 pages of images with very sparse text that just kind of told, took you through the film visually and what the film would look like. And it just really you know, because words on a page do one thing, but I do think that the screenplay format is a little bit limited because it kind of, film is a visual medium and yeah, of course. it kind of hits you in the gut and in a way that words words have a sort of more distancing effect, I think. And so those images just kind of give you a visceral sense of what the film will feel like. And so you're able to kind of just flick through the lookbook and get a very quick sense visually of what the film will be. And I think that that, it, and it's much quicker to do that, frankly, than reading a screenplay. And so I always find that attaching a lookbook really helps. And so they... I remember Kevin saying to me that was an amazing lookbook and it immediately got my attention. And so, and then, you know, we talked and really got on and they're tremendous, tremendous people. They're very generous and supportive of, of female filmmakers of sort of up and coming filmmakers and want to help and kind of just really, you know, they dove in and they kind of, um, and that, that was just a huge coup for us as a team because having them attached to it just changed everything. I think. Yeah. That, that tidbit about the the lookbook is, is really, really fascinating because obviously you're, you're on both sides of the equation here, uh, writing and directing, but uh, listeners, write this stuff down. Come on. It's not that hard. This is free content we're giving you, uh, free advice. Uh, <laughs> but so I wanted to ask, uh, doing double duty like this, is that something that you would want to do moving forward? Because this is your feature debut. You've written and directed several short films before. Yeah, um, I think for me, the... Um, I think for me, the ultimate, the ultimate is to write and direct. Um, but I'm definitely open to just writing and just directing, actually, just because I think it keeps you, well, for several reasons. Um, I think it keeps you sharp. I think it to collaborate with other people and to sort of, you know, I think, I think when you're writing and directing, you're, you're, you split your time a little bit between both. And so, you know, for example, I'm actually attached to projects right now that I, some I'm writing and some I'm directing and um, my own projects I'm writing and directing, but projects that other people bring me into um, are projects that typically I tend to either write or direct, but not both. They, they, they've evolved a little bit by the time I get to them. And it's really interesting because I think, you know, the one, the ones where I'm sort of the one, the ones that I'm sort of going to direct, I, I, I have to, because I'm not as closely involved in the screenplay, I really have to think, I'm really thinking much more visually actually, because I'm okay. not, I'm not going back to the screenplay and thinking, how can I, how can I address this with a screenplay? No, I'm thinking, how can I address this visually? Because, mm -hmm. and it really, it actually gets me thinking about the, the, the structure of the film, the visual, the visual language of the film and kind of, so it actually, it, it, I find, I find I'm a little bit more focused on the visuals at an earlier stage when I'm writing, when I'm just directing. And then when you're writing, it's the opposite, right? You're kind of, you really, you're really focused on structure. You're really focused on story and you, you don't, you know, you don't rely on the visuals to get you out of that hole. You fix that hole at the big. So it's kind of, it's actually really good, sort of really good to access, to keep those muscles, to keep the writing muscle and directing muscle really sort of strong to kind of do them as individual exercises, you know, as, and, you know, and I think, and I like collaborating and I think you learn from the people that you collaborate with. And that's, that's always 
And I think you should always be growing in this industry. I don't think you should repeat yourself. I, you know, I think it's nice to kind of keep growing and changing. But I, but, but ultimately, like, yes, my dream is to ultimately be in a position where I can write and direct my own material. Absolutely. Uh, that was one thing that, that Jenna brought up a lot, too, is the, the collaborative nature of the project and how, how rewarding it was and how the environment was very sort of, you know, it was welcoming of ideas. Um, so it's, you know, it's great that as someone, as a screenwriter, uh, you know, you're able to tap into that side of things because, you know, it takes a lot of filmmakers their whole career to get both crafts on that level. Um, so uh, speaking, like circling back toward the producers of the Florida project being involved in the project. Uh, another thing that this film has in common with that is I think like revelatory child acting that it like, just like off the charts, like some of the best you've ever seen um, from, from your three child leads. Uh, and you can tell from my Amelia smile Parker. that that makes, that makes me really happy the, to hear that. Yeah. The, I mean, it's, it's just, it jumps off the screen at you because uh, you know, obviously Jenna and Pablo have like unbelievable chemistry in their own right, but they're, they're extremely good actors. And that was like, sort you know, that was a known thing by us, at least going into the film. These kids are just, they're carrying so much emotional weight and they're doing it so well. Um, and it's the type of film that like, you know, things could go wrong if they didn't. So how did you, how were you able to foster that environment for them and get these really complex emotional performances out of them? Um, well, it, that, I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of in this film is is the kids and and what we did with them and and how that that, all, that side of things all went. And um, I, I'm just so thrilled to hear those words. Thank you. And um, look, the kid, the two younger ones had never actually even acted before. Um, they'd it's, never. It's yeah, not fair. I know. <laughs> um, and then the older one had um, Chancellor had done a little bit of catalogue modelling and commercials and stuff, but nothing really dramatic. So in, in effect, they were all newcomers and we knew that going in and we wanted that going in, honestly, because. I've I've worked with child actors in the past and you know I know that if they're very well trained they can acquire certain habits and they can sort of they you know they often child actors often acquire a sort of cute performance style where they're performing yeah. you know they're performing it's more like they're when they get trained they, they become little performers and yeah exactly um, and that well because also that's like the types of roles that they are aiming to get usually it's not something yeah. so uh so Mass, emotionally yeah, honest yeah. to this yeah and I wanted I just wanted I just think kids are kind of I think kids, you know, look, as adults, we kind of put up walls and we don't want people to see our emotional because our emotions, because usually our emotions, you know, are something that we we don't want to share with other people that, you know, fear or shame or, you know, I, I feel we have a lot of emotion, you know, when people look too deeply into our eyes and see how we're feeling, that makes us uncomfortable as adults. And so we try and prevent that happening. But kids don't have that same filled that same wall up and so what you want is you want a child who is emotionally available emotionally honest which most children are frankly and you just want to sort of tap into their inherent imaginations because and children have great imaginations you know even the youngest children you know are just great storytellers they're constantly making up stories and if you get you know if you're able to kind of have a child who is who is emotionally available who has a tremendous imagination and can imagine for example like you know we played before going into production, we we played little acting games with them. We'd get them to sort of imagine their backstories. And, you know, Perry, for uh, Amelia, the actress who plays Perry, for example, we asked her to imagine what her other birthdays had been like. Why why was she so, you know, what was what had gone on in, with her and her mum in the past that that led to this sort of explosive birthday? Yeah. And and she was able to imagine it very richly. Um, and and 
once that back, once they had imagined their backstories and they knew, you know, they had a sort of sense of their characters' lives, um, they were just able to go in and have an authentic, honest, emotional response to the situation. And then what you have to do, though, is take away the, the emotional response has to be to the dramatic situation. It can't be to being on the film set. So because being on the film set, so if they're responding to stuff and dynamics that are happening on set, then they're responding to something that isn't in the story and in the screenplay. And so it was really important to just sort of slightly insulate them on the set, just kind of keep, because it was an indie set. We had lots of drama and lots of budget. And so just insulating the kids from that so that they, you know, when they were in a scene, they were just the, the emotions that we were seeing were emotions that related to the scene. And then those emotions poured out because they're sort of children are intuitive. They're emotionally honest and they they can imagine, you know, they feel very deeply that the situation that they're acting in, as you can see it on their faces, those are not feigned emotions. Those are emotions that are deeply felt in the moment. And then, you know, then you call cut and then they go back to themselves. But but so I think it was really important to kind of we did little acting Sabina Friedman Seitz was our associate producer and also played Layla in the movie. Um, and mm. she's a trained actress and she was really instrumental. So she and I would kind of, you know, do we did little, we'd sort of meet the kids in the weekends leading up to production. We'd meet with the kids. We'd do little warm up exercises that got them comfortable in their body that got rid of tension, basically. So getting rid of tension is really important because then you're, then you're emotionally available and you're not, you know, you're not expressing the tension on your face. You're expressing the scene. And then she would, we would just get them to imagine um, their characters' backstories. We also gave them a little filmmaking boot camp because they, you know, this is a camera. This is why yeah. we do us. This is why we do a scene twenty different times from all these different angles. And we just explained that to them so they knew why we'd have to do all the different takes we did. And they just got a little boot camp so that then when they walked onto set, they were, um, you know, they were ready. And you know, we also they also really bonded as a sibling unit. So that was really important. So they became like these three little musketeers, you know, these, you know, they became these little conspirators and kind of Chancellor was a really great men, you know, older sort of, you know, brother figure to, to the younger two as well. So they really bonded and that was so they had each other on set and that was really important. And then again, I mean, there are so many ways in which Pablo and Jenna elevate this movie, but but helping me with the child actors was one of them. So yeah. I don't know if Jenna told you about the scene in which she um um the character, the Parker, the actor who plays Denim has to spit at her. Mm -hmm. And the reason we were able to get that scene was all Jenna. I mean, she just, because she saw, you know, she saw that this kid was scared of spitting at an adult, you know, that that was yeah, not I a bet. nice thing to do, you know, and Parker's so sweet and so polite and such a lovely child that that's a really hard thing to do, to spit at an adult that you like and look up to and kind of, and Jenna, Jenna gave them permission to do that. She made it fun. She made it a game. She sort of said, she, you know, before we did the take, she'd be like, come on, let's practice spitting. Oh, you can spit better than that. Is that all you've got? <laughs> spit at me, spit at me. And she made it a game. And it. she took away the taboo. She took away the sort of stigma. And the reason, you know, that's the reason we were able to get that scene. And, you know, Pablo, same with Pablo in many scenes, you know, they both really, really helped me with the kids because acting, you know, acting is reacting and giving the kids something to sort of bounce off of and giving them something to react to, which both Pablo and Jenna did and were very conscious of doing with the kids was just really important. Yeah, she did. She did bring up that she sort of, you know, naturally serves as like a mama bear to any child actor she works with. And yeah, it, it comes across everything you're saying does, because this is this is the type of thing you hear anytime you get good child performances is that like they're comfortable to perform, you know, and you get genuine emotion because of that. Um, another thing that I think lent a lot of genuineness to the movie is your locations and your production design, uh, because you shoot in the Pacific North Northwest, right? Was it Oregon? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it like I, I don't know. I don't think it could be possible, but it truly felt like you just walked into, you know, the office of a junkyard and just shot like whatever it looked like. We, we did. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I mean, yes and no. So we, we, that was a real junkyard. It now no longer exists, actually. It's funny. It's, oh, wow. um, yeah, they, those, those junkyards are sort of dying. I think it's now a sort of computer recycling facility or something wow. to changing time. So we, I think feel like we captured a slice of history or something. I mean, <laughs> that place had been there a long time, but it was on its sort of, I think it was, yeah. Um, so, but we did, we, we did use a real life junkyard and real life office of a junkyard. But then of course, so we had many, many found locations that were kind of, that had stuff in them already. And then, you know, obviously our production design team went in and dressed that office and kind of rearranged stuff and made it all make sense for the camera. But a lot of the stuff, but they were rearranging stuff that was already there for that location. Um, and we had, you know, I mean, I think it was, we spent about a year and a half before shooting the film, traveling up between up and down between LA and Oregon, um, just so we could like, find those locations we did so much I mean and also the extras that appear in the film I think which also give you a tremendous sense of place and you know that was all part of really just spending the time before production traveling up and down to Oregon and and you know knocking on doors anytime we saw an interesting house we'd stop we'd knock on the door we'd have a conversation with the the rest you know the person who lived there and just you know hear about their lives you know we we heard about sort of things that you know sort of dovetail with what's in the movie you know people who've been to prison we spoke to people who've been to prison people who are unemployed underemployed people who's had dealings with the criminal justice system we got you know we became really friendly with um you know a bunch of bikers and people in the biker community and that was all part that was all you know that all flowed out of the commitment to really getting to know the area and really getting because i obviously i'm british and i i understood the blue collarness of this story but you know really wanted to be able to translate that into a u.s context and it was so it was just important for me to spend time there and just really, you know, get to know the small towns, you know, in that corner, in that pocket of Oregon. And yeah. I went to every small town in that pocket of Oregon and we scouted every possible, every inch of that, you know, where we knew where we'd be shooting and we, we got to know it really well. And so that's how we got these found locations. And then, but then we had a tremendous production designer as well, Marissa Leguizamon, who kind of, who's a superstar and is now just like, you know, you know, sort of knocking it out of the park. She just did, um, she just did, um, she just production designed the pilot for Naomi, which is um, Ava's uh, new superhero TV show. So Ooh. that's so she's kind of really rising, and she yeah, so she just up. she yeah, and she just did so. I mean, she just so the house, for example. I mean, she just worked her ass off for this film, frankly, and her team did as well. Um, um, the Javed and Eddie, and they basically, um, you know, the house, for example, was a was a boarded up house. It was completely empty. No one had lived there for a year. We drove past it. We liked. We liked it as a shell, but she, every, every object in that house were objects at her and her team. So that was the one location that we really, really built from scratch. You know, that every, every object in that house was something that her and her team placed. And, you know, they wanted to make it a sort of, they wanted to, to really feel like a home for the actors as well. Like Marissa shared with me that it was really important for her that, that if Pablo and Jenna wanted to open a drawer, that there would be, what you know, even if it wasn't discussed beforehand, that they would have the freedom and blocking to open a drawer and that there would be stuff in that drawer that made sense. Yeah, for that yeah, family, it that allows they could for use. more freedom. Yeah, and that just to give them options for physical actions and stuff to do in that, like, so, you know, so every drawer in that house was, you know, even the ones that never get open was stuffed full of stuff that if Pablo and Jenna had wanted to use that, they could have done. And the stuff in those drawers made sense for that character, those characters in that family. So that's a level of detail and care 
that she put in on a tiny indie budget, which is kind of a miracle to me. Yeah, that's that's wildly impressive. To be honest, it's funny that you brought up uh, being British because I was shocked when you hopped in this meeting and you were um, because I was like, I, there's just no doubt in my head. It's like, how did you were you like, get, am I on the wrong call? Yeah, I was like, how did you get America better than American directors get it? <laughs> like, it's so insane. Well, I think, you know, I think as Europeans, we grow up kind of obsessed with American cinema and you, you, you know, we talk about Lorelei being a film about interiority in your dream life. And I think growing up, the U S was part of my, the, I, I dreamt the U S and I imagined the U S from movies before I ever even saw it. And so I feel like it, you know, existed in, in, in my mind, you know, as a, as a play, you know, cinematically in my mind before it existed, before I ever sort of came here. And then, so I feel like I had imagined it for a long time. And then, um, you know, I'm also probably a good, mimic um, because I kind of in, I exist with a foot in many different cultures and so mm. when you exist in a with so for example you know like I was born in in London in England but you know my father is Irish from the west of Ireland born in the west of Ireland my mother is Italian born in in northern Italy they both um, emigrated to the UK so I had you know so both of my parents cultures were wildly different to to the UK culture and I learned to kind of whenever I was with members of my extended family I would just adapt who I was and how I behaved. And even the language I spoke, I mean, you know, spoke Italian, um, uh, you know, according to who I was with. And so I was able yeah. to be a chameleon in that way. And then, you know, and then also like going from being, you know, a working class kid in an inner city, you know, you know, in a tough inner city school to going to Cambridge University, I learned to be a chameleon there too, you know? So I learned to kind of, so I, I think I'm a good mimic as well. And I think maybe that's part of it. Just being no, able to kind yeah. of listen to people talk and kind of, you know, um, and then, you know, always the actors always help you, you know, like the actor who played Kurt in the film, um, Brian Findlay, he, he, you know, he's, 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 he's an actor and has worked professionally, but also kind of has a normal job, you know, as a carpenter and kind of, um, and has lived, you know, has lived adjacent to sort of, you know, the kind the you know, has, li has, you know, has members of his family who are sort of in that mot motorcycle community. So he kind of, he had some colorful phrases on set that yeah. he would just throw in, you know, that I would never, I was like, well, <laughs> you know, he would throw it in and I'd be like, that's great. Let's keep it. I mean, and so, so, you know, the actors help with that kind of. Yeah. And, well, yeah. And also beyond that, I mean, like you said, like life in poverty is universal regardless of location. So it's probably more important to have uh, a, the, you know, a background and the ability to understand that more complexly than a location. Um, you've been very generous with time. So we'll, we'll wrap up, but uh I wanted to throw in a quick lowbrow question before we leave. Uh, I was just talking to Susan before we started recording that uh, we just wrapped up a long extended series on uh, the filmography of Nicolas Cage. So we've just been asking uh, because, you know, he's so uh, mercurial in people's opinions of him, uh, general takes on the actor and your favorite Nick Cage performance. I like him when he's hard boiled and in hard boiled mode. I think that's always, that's always fun. And then maybe just, um, you know, I think maybe Raising Arizona, just because, you know, I think that's a sort of wonderful sort of teaming of filmmaker and actor, right? Where it's kind of just like, it's the perfect, you know, it's a perfect combination of kind of, you know, that type of actor who can kind of, who, who, who has so many layers to his acting and is kind of can go really deep in places where you don't expect, I think, mm -hmm. you know, because I think you kind of, I think that's what I like about him is that he kind of, he always surprises me when, 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 when you get an emotional hit out of him and it's always like that, cause he's sort of, he has this sort of 
sort of ironic edge and this kind of, but then when you, when yeah. he hits you emotionally, you're like, it really wallops you because you don't see it coming. And exactly. I think that that's so, yeah, that's what I think is, is, um, that's, that's what I would say. I think I nice. like that. And you know, it's interesting. I like that you kind of, different actors do have different types of acting personalities and acting personas. And I think that that's kind of, you know, I think, um, I think it's really nice to kind of pay tribute to that. Yeah. And I think what you've said, I think what, I mean, just to sort of go back to Lorelai, I mean, I think that what part of what I really am proud of with the film is showcasing Pablo and Jenna in the types of roles that I think that we haven't seen them in, in mm. and, and really showing that they have that range and that kind of incredible, you know, I mean, I just love seeing them in these types of characters, you know, Jenna, you know, Pablo has done a lot of action stuff recently mm-hmm. um, and, you know, comedy previously, um, you know, but also as a tremendous dramatic actor started in theater, was nominated for a Tony. And so obviously, you know, was in the wire. And so obviously has, you know, obviously has that sort of background. And then Jenna, obviously um, Jenna has, you know, she's, she's so good at playing kind of steely characters, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, and I think, you know, with this character, she's really, there's something unhinged about Dolores. And I really like seeing that. I really like seeing how, I really like her seeing sort of out in the wild in a way, which is kind of what she does with Dolores. She really, you know, she really sort of tapped into Dolores, into Dolores's sort of animal self. And it was really kind of, I think of her like a hurricane storming through the film, you know, absolutely. Kind of, yeah. And I just love seeing them do something really different. And I think you kind of, there's such there's such beloved act sort of you know character actors anyway, but I really think you sort of grow a new love for them from having seen them in in the movie. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And frankly, these are the types of roles that actors in general don't often get the chance to play because uh, you know there aren't a ton of films that uh, are willing to like <laughs> accurately delve into this subject matter. Um, so we'll wrap up though. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a ge- like we genuinely uh, truly love your movie. Um, I'm excited for whatever you might have in the future. Thanks so much. You're so kind. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. And that was our interview. Drew's interview with Sabrina yeah, Doyle. Thank you. It's not yours. <laughs> I I have to cut the episode together and publish it. So I take okay. full ownership. Thank you for cutting together my interview. I appreciate it. Thanks to Sabrina Doyle. Uh, for her time and best of luck to her and the team from Lorelei. Um, we'll keep everybody posted when it does see a wider release for everybody to check out, hopefully sooner rather than later. And it's her debut. So it seems like it could be a big springboard for bigger and big, bigger things, especially with somebody like Jenna Malone uh, attached to her first movie. I think that's a good telltale sign of, of her talent right there of somebody gravitating, you know, if you heard our interview with, uh, with Jenna, she talks about like some of her choices, uh, in the, the movies that she works on and it's a good bellwether. It's a good telltale sign of the, the talent that Sabrina Doyle has and the promise that she has as a first time director. And, and the she future. got, she got the Jenna stamp of approval. You don't just give that out folks. Exactly. So thank you for listening and please be sure to share the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. Donate if you're able to. Thank you to all you wonderful donors for donating. Follow us on social media at We Bought a Mic and check out our website at webottamike.net. We're still taking a little break here, another week, and then we will be back with 
the long-awaited review of F9. We got to do it. Saga. We got to do it to him. I'm seven deep. I hit, I hit sort of a wall because I know Hobbs and Shaw is like a bit of a departure. And I was just getting comfortable with like the vibe for the first time ever in this fucking insane, stupid saga of movies. Are you going starting- to, are you going to watch Hobbs and Shaw? I, I feel like I got I've like, you don't watch the seven of them and then skip to <laughs> nine. That's like silly. Like what kind of protest is that? Well, well, no, there is, there is an eighth movie. It's the fate of the furious. Wait, what? I have. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so I've so Hobbs and Shaw is is like a separate thing. Like it might it might tie back together later on, but it doesn't really. I mean, it kind of does, but not really. You know, fuck. I didn't even know it. There was another fast movie aside from that. I'm so fucked. Hobbs and Shaw, I think, is the worst one out of all of them. Out of all 100 I, I think i think so in, in my personal opinion it's how i don't i don't it's gonna have to be pretty <laughs> fucking bad to compete with some of the early ones <laughs> i don't know man four well Oof. oh yeah that one that one's the most forgettable i it's would just, say there there is zero fun in four right. and like if there's no fun in a really stupid action movie then it's just not a movie like there's nothing there for me Right. You know what I mean? Right. Well, um, all roads lead to the We Bought a Mic. We bought a <laughs> We Bought a Mic episode of F9, uh, which, you know, in the spirit of F9 being delayed from 2020 to 2021, we we also had to delay our episode. Um, and we're just we're just ramping up, baby. We're revving our engines. From uh, I I'm I'm picking up Adam uh without parking the car i'm just opening the doors so that he jumps he doesn't even jump into the car i'm gonna swing the car into him so yeah, that you're gonna he like it's like picked up into the car yeah effortlessly too um it's it's tough though we appreciate you guys waiting for us because uh it's been a long day without you my friends <laughs> and that's and all we'll i'm gonna tell say you, we'll tell you all about it when we see you again next time on We Bought a Mic. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. This is my suicide note.